Hi, welcome back to the Tanto Die podcast. So far in this series, we've been chatting about our real life work in actual geographical, physical locations. We have. But today, we're going to talk about the digital space because, well, we started experimenting with using digital spaces as the sites for storytelling a few years ago. It all started with User Not Found, where we used the phone as the site. We were really aware that we're all going to work in digital spaces and we're all carrying those digital spaces with us all day. I think I touch the screen of my phone more times a day than I touch my children. Mm, sleeping with them and it's giving us emotional experiences all the time so we like really enjoyed looking at that site and kind of interpreting the emotional aspect of it like we would do in a, in a self-storage building. And then Covid hit. So it was, felt like a really good time to adapt the live production into a digital space we make a video podcast and it's been a really steep learning curve and it's been so brilliant to be able to reach so many new people through digital platforms yeah, all around the world mm-hmm. quite fun we've also been increasing the accessibility of our work because of that and that's been really interesting to work with um, creative captioning and audio describers and it's interesting to see that there's a real drive to support theatre makers to create work in the digital space. And in fact, for us, um, this podcast is the culmination of a three-part project, starting with a skin hunger documentary, an odds-on interactive short film, and this is the final part of this puzzle. So we're going to start by chatting about User Not Found, because um, that was our first foray into digital. Actually, beforehand, we were pretty... DIY, low tech. Um, so I'll just describe it a little bit to give you a bit of context. So user not found, the live production. You came into a cafe, you ordered your coffee, got yourself a cake, sat down, um, and I was sitting in the cafe. Um, you didn't know I was a performer. And you all got headphones and uh, a smartphone. And basically when the show started, I started speaking and you heard my voice in your headphones. And when I got a text message as a character, my phone lit up with a text message and then all the phones on the tables that you were holding as well got that same message. So you followed the story through following my live experience within the cafe, as well as everything that happened on the phone, so it was all synced. Um, And then I moved through the cafe. So sometimes I was really far away from you, you couldn't see me. And sometimes I was literally sliding underneath your table or... Um, sitting next to you at your uh, at your table. Um, you make it sound so easy. Yeah, Carrie. it was really simple. Yeah, really simple. <laughs> it wasn't actually really simple. No. We didn't even know who we're looking for to collaborate with us when we started working on it. Yeah, we were told we had to talk to some creative technologists. We were like, well, where are we going to find them? Uh, we did find them in the end. We found the most brilliant creative technologists. Luke Alexander and Abhinav Bajpai. Hi, I'm Abhinav Bajpai. I'm Luke Alexander, and I worked with the Dantel Dye team creating the Use Not Found app and a few other projects since. So when we met with Luke and Abhinav, it felt really clear they'd be great people to work with, especially because they were really passionate about theatre. Um, they knew so much about the fringe scene and immersive performances, and that felt really exciting for us. We knew immediately that we want to work with them. That was really clear, but... Why did they say yes to working with us? So things that make technology projects profitable are, you know, kind of, you know, high high fees, obviously, but it's also certainty. So if you've done something 100 times before, you know how much it's going to cost you, so you can say yes. So one of the reasons that there aren't more companies in the creative technology space um, are because uh, you can say yes to a project and it might turn out to be uh, unprofitable, which generally speaking, you know, companies don't want to do. Um 
So why did we say uh, yes to this? Well, two reasons. One is obviously that you know we personally want to do interesting things, but from a business point of view, um, unless you have a way to test new technologies and to try new things, you then can't sell them. So in in theory, although we, we didn't end up doing this, um, there's a, a a really nice model you can adopt where you do. R&D, unusual technology with creative people and then take those learnings and apply it to Mm. um, ongoing work that is more profitable, things like that. The cost of the technological elements was, you know, not exceeding kind of a thousand pounds. So um, that was a really, you know, it it wasn't cheap, cheap, but it doesn't have to be a hugely expensive process. Mm. In our our sort of more corporate work, it, it's definitely more of a, we're given a very specific brief when we go and do a thing. Um, the thing that was different about this, I guess, was that it was such an open-ended question. And that was both sort of intriguing, but maybe maybe not super sensible from a business point of view. Yeah, I mean, we should say that we're not very good businessmen, really. Yeah, not, I mean, <laughs> yeah, don't, maybe don't come to us with a business advice. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that was part of the thrilling thing, was kind of like we were, we were creating this thing with you, we felt, and... Um, coming up with ideas and and we didn't know where it would end up um which was really exciting and really interesting and really different from what we were doing in the other parts of our work um so yeah yeah and i would say you know if any potential clients are listening that companies (laughs) that do more interesting things and take chances do have the teams that are more engaged and interested in technology um whereas the kind of companies that will just kind of churn out hundreds and hundreds of websites um, on a standard template you know you don't get access to that creativity. So it helps us demonstrate that to new clients as well. Mm. I think it's really useful for young theatre makers to hear, or for any theatre makers to hear, okay, there's there's value to what we can offer to the tech company as well as the other way around. I think that's, that's good to remind ourselves. But it, it, it has to be a, a sort of collaborative process, right? Because if, if it is a purely transactional, you know, um, relationship where, you know, we give you some money and you're going to build this thing, it, it doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no motivation from from both sides to to change things, and you start getting to the point where you're saying, "Well, this is exactly what you get," um, and that's just not how mm. creative technology projects can work. It needs a bit of give and take on both sides. There were a lot of challenges. Um, we asked Luke and Abadav to explain to us in the simplest way how they built the app for User Not Found. I think there are there are two elements to what we were doing. One of which was, you know, the the obvious bit of writing code to make phones do things and, and give you guys a sort of a, a lighting desk type situation where you could control all these phones. I think the other half was sort of being technology whisperers, maybe. We were sort of explaining this is <laughs> a thing that's very easy on technology to do and it's not a problem. And this thing that seems very simple to do is very difficult to do. Uh, and for us, that's very intuitive because we work with technology all the time. But it was very interesting getting into those conversations early on. Um, I think we would have conversations where you'd say, we'd love it if in this scene the lioness could be superimposed over the camera image. And we said, we were just saying, you know, in, in, in 2016, a phone can't do this. It's just not, impos- it's just not possible. Um, whereas, would it have been possible today? It might be possible today. Um, more possible today, yeah. But then I remember having a conversation with you guys where you were like, we'd really love it if the phones could have the date and time of the show that day. And we were like, that's very easy. And I think you guys were, were like, oh, we thought the other thing was, <laughs> was difficult and this one was easy. And, and so kind of um, being the kind of people who could, who could explain the, the kind of the possibilities to you and then be able to go away and build it was, 
I think those were the two important kind of mm. elements we were balancing. I, th I think also as technology people, we tend to have a, um, a focus on what what, it, what will actually physically happen on the on the day a lot more. So a lot of times when we were saying things were difficult, it was more like that that will probably break or there's a higher chance it will break during the show. We wanted to keep it as simple as possible. As I've never saying something you could just go in, switch on, and it would work. Um, and that was that was an interesting challenge for us because there were lots of things that would be totally possible, you know, hard to do or whatever. It wasn't necessarily about kind of putting the time in to make it work at the start. It was just with the Lioness, for example, any kind of AR thing you know, in a dark room, different layouts, cafes and things like that. That just seemed like something that was was sort of going to work 20% of the time, which wouldn't quite be enough. So yeah. it, it wasn't all just one way that I think definitely the creative team at, at Dante pushed us occasionally. Well, we would say, I don't think we can do that. And Daphne would not accept that as an answer. <laughs> I don't like, uh, I don't like, we, no. And we would have to figure it out. We'd have to find a way to do it. So, what, can you give us, an, do you remember an example? I mean, there are really small, the, the example I'm thinking of sounds so trivial, but um, we wanted the keyboard to come up whenever Terry typed a message. And we just couldn't for the life of us figure out how we were going to make a system that could, we, we overcomplicated it in our minds. And in the end, we came up with a really simple solution which was just we we screen captured someone actually just typing all the messages out and played a tiny video over the bottom of the screen but that was really late in the day we got that fixed because all the way through we're just like how do we make a, a phone type on its own i can't, I can't yeah. it <laughs> it's one of those that seems like it should be really easy and then you're like well they never do that there's no yeah. there's no situation where someone at apple sat there and thought let's give them a way to make someone type without being there and uh yeah. Can you think, look, of other examples that surprised you that you thought were, oh, we can't do that. And then, oh, we found a solution for it. I think a, a lot of the really complicated technical bits that I was very pleased by and was dubious that we get working were around um, robustness and latency. So you've got a room with, um, I don't know, 30, 40 plus people in. Um, or with phones. Now, although the phones are all doing the same thing, they have to be told to do the same thing and they're all acting sort of semi-independently. So one of the things that I thought was going to be a real issue was you send a, a kind of broadcast message out to all these phones in sort of a, you know, a space you don't totally control, so a cafe or, you know, uh, it's a location that hasn't been designed for this for this show. Um, there's going to be a phone that gets, uh, you know, 20 seconds late or one second late even. And people getting different messages at different times is something I was really worried about because so much of it relied on, you know, everything happening in a moment. And the performance was, you know, you want the performer to say something and then something happens on the phones. Um, and I, and, and then we definitely hit some issues. We had, for example, um, ideally we were going to try and do um, live sound, um, as you probably remember, through the, through the app. So Terry's voice would be... Um, captured by a microphone and be put through the sound desk mm -hmm. onto the app so we come into into the actual phone um, and that was just turned out to be literally impossible there'd be too much of a delay you were very close and intimate with, with the, the performer and then even even a small delay even a split second would make it really obvious that he was moving his lips and then you were hearing a bit later and the solution for that was was, was great in a way because it was just disco headphones um, silent disco headphones um, using old old school analog radio waves and then broadcast to the sound desk and that was a that's a solution where you almost it's almost a non-technical solution it's the same as when we do sort of the bigger less creative projects it's about deciding how much effort to put into solving specific problems you have a limited amount of time there is a solution for the audio that works that is tested that is used by people so we can either spend the entire six months developing a bespoke audio system for mm -hmm. you or we can get back to work on the 
the creative and accept that people will buy the illusion because of because of Terry's performance. I remember we had to come up with two different scripts. Yeah, so we had the script that me as the actor was following, the words I was saying, and then we had this other script for phones. And we had to be so detailed, didn't we? Yeah, every single item on the screen needed to be described and thought through and be really believable. The show is performed in two sides, essentially. One is in the cafe, where Terry speaks to the audience. And the other side is the phones. And I remember we had to then write a whole script just for what happens on the phones. Do you remember much about it? What yeah. was in it? Yeah, I do. I, I, and, and it was very detailed and very useful for us. I think, as Luke was saying, we've done some other projects now with apps. And I think those technical scripts are so important because they let everyone know the parameters of what's going to happen. Everyone has their expectations set. And it's also an important thing in terms of um, getting us all using the same language to describe what we're talking about because we are coming from slightly different worlds and, you know, you might be talking about one thing and we'll, we'll understand it in a completely different way. So to have that laid out was, was super important. And I think um, projects where that hasn't happened so well, it's fallen apart a bit. People have been like, oh, I thought it was going to do this. And it's like, oh, no, we read the script as it doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I remember that being a real key turning point for us because we could just map out the app. What we quite quickly discovered, I'm sure you remember, is that there's, we need to know what the phone's doing at each time. There's no room, as you would have maybe with a, with a, with a traditional script, for sort of improvisation or the performer to just be in the space. So it very much has to be the phone needs to be looking like this at this point. And part of that was because we couldn't predict how involved the audience would be with the phones. So a lot of them, and it was fascinating watching, you know, all the way through from the R&D that we did at the South Bank Centre through to the the, the performances, um, watching different people use the phones in different ways. I mean, I remember I sat to, to next to one guy who won the performances uh, um, who just looked at the phone, put it down, face down on the table and sat back. And I'm not sure what he got out of the performance. <laughs> he seemed to enjoy it, but certainly wasn't the performance that we planned for it. And other people who just stared at the phones and didn't look at the performer, which I found equally um, equally odd. But what I remember we really like, quickly, re- and I think you'd, you'd have to really quickly realised, is that um, we need to be really clear with the audience about what we expect from them and whether they should be looking at this thing or whether it's something they're going to miss. And the anxiety for them of missing something um, you know, of, of sitting there being like, oh, God, who should I be looking at at the moment? Should I be looking up? Should I be looking down? Is the phone going to do something? Do I have to interact? Is it going to ask me something? Um, and so that script is really useful from that point of view as well because it, it gave us a clear indication, like, hold on, the, the audience member might not realise that the phone's off for a reason here or might not realise that even at the beginning of the show that they need to let us know when they're ready to start by by tapping it. So had some, you know, went for a very naturalistic the phone's just gonna be there. It would look like a normal phone to basically it just flashing, hello, click me at the beginning, which, you know, was necessary. Somebody who really brought the technical together in few of our shows was stage manager, Philippa Mannion. Hello. Um I'm Philippa Mannion. Um I was the technical one of the technical stage managers of Use Not Found. Her technical knowledge paired with her experience as a stage manager really helped to bridge mm. between our analog brain to the technical brain of some of the... She basically translated She basically us, translated our <laughs> words to technology words. When we were looking for a stage manager to come on board for Use Not Found, um, we were looking quite a lot for, for the right person. And I remember Tom Clutterbuck, who also uh, worked on the show, 
Said, yeah, because it was so big because you were like, we need two stage we managers. We need two stage managers and we need very specific skills. And he said, oh, Philippa, she works at the Apple store as a genius, yes. which is why I always call you a genius, not only because you are actually a genius. Um, and so that felt like the perfect match for that project. Can you talk a little bit about how you brought the skills? What skills did you need that weren't yeah. kind of regular stage management skills. The story would happen in front of you on this person's phone. And what you realize during the show is that you're holding Terry's phone. Um, and you can see lots of things. You, whatever he's seeing on his phone, you can see it on the phone that you're holding as well. So you needed somebody quite specific to be able to kind of like troubleshoot these like mobile phones, troubleshoot the network that the phones were all sitting on. So the phones were sitting on this internet what's well, an intranet but an internet let's call it an internet for for fun um and like basically you need someone to quick be able to quickly troubleshoot and understand what was going wrong with that and work with the app developers because you worked with these amazing app developers Luke and Abinaf who built this amazing app so that the phones would run and all show the same uh thing basically mm -hmm. like yeah um i think like one of the things i could help with was i could follow instructions really really quickly from Luke and Abinaf that didn't need a lot of translation so especially when we got up to like showtime i could like i remember the first show we did in ipswich which was the first ever performance which must have been what do you remember about that so stressful i didn't actually see any of the app before um, we actually ran the show. So I ran the show completely blind. I was able to communicate with Luke and Abinaf quite quickly about like kind of knew all the little lingo and syntax mm. that they that they would, they would yeah, use. To communicate to them. And I learned a lot from them as well. It was a, quite an exchange because they were like, oh, that's called this. And I was like, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's because we want to hear. Because the computer screen is called, they call it real estate, like how much real estate you have to like fit on the screen. So they were, they were always talking about like, oh, there's not enough real estate to do that. And they I don't think I've ever, you'd never communicated yeah. that. You've protected me from that <laughs> a lot, of a lot of technical terms, yeah, exactly. In our partnership episodes, we spoke to Sophie Gunn. We talked about the importance of making the shows accessible to deaf audiences. We did a lot of work with our technical team to make sure that our show could be accessible to a wider audience. So Luke, Abhinav, Philippa and Sophie all worked together. Um, they were instrumental in making sure that happened. So we worked with Sophie Gunn as an access associate for the show um she's her she's her first language is actually using bsl because her both her parents are deaf and she's a great advisor hire her all the time anyone <laughs> <laughs> hire her um and we because this the show is technically in the round and the audience are facing a lot of different ways i think sophie was exploring do we can we use BSL in the show? It's, I mean, it just became, I think, I think by the time I got onto the project, I think, it, I don't remember in Derby if we had an interpreter or whether we sort of like decided not to do it in the no, end. No, I don't think we did actually. I was there in Derby. Yeah. But I remember there was talk about it, like how are we going to, where are we going to put them mm -hmm. because of the the way the show was done. But then uh, Sophie, Sophie was like, okay, we're not BSL. That's a, that's a shame. Because ideally you want to offer both as much as possible, mm -hmm. BSL and captioning whether that's open captioning or closed captioning. Um, what is the difference between open and closed captioning? <laughs> so opening ca open captions are when everybody can see the captions. So there's like a box on stage or they're projected onto a back wall or, you know, they're available to everybody. Everybody can see them. Um, and closed captioning is when 
not everyone can see them. You can turn them on and off. Like usually they're all delivered on into a phone or a tablet that somebody would hold in front of them while they're watching the show. Um, and you can usually toggle it on and off if it's closed captioning. Um, but th for this show, <laughs> we had this magical gift of we gave everyone a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. So we it's a great delivery place for a for a caption for captions and Luke and Abernath and Sophie talked about it being available on maybe like four or five phones so that four or five of the phones were would run the captions as well as the um video and then the other you know 70 phones would run just the show mm-hmm and there was a lot of uh, thinking about whether or not it should be timed. This was another thing. <laughs> we had this thing about the app being like all the images of the show being on like some kind of time. But then that just became deeply problematic because the show was early on in, early on in like the rehearsal, not the rehearsal process, but in the preview process before we went to the Edinburgh Fringe. And like Terry's performance was always slightly different. And you also didn't want to control Terry in this like horrible robotic way. Because I think you're obviously you as a director, you don't want your actor to be just this prop in yeah. this magical technology game exactly and it was lost lost that kind of human touch so i remember i remember i remember Abinaf being like okay we're gonna have to design the captions so that you can send every single caption to the phone and then sophie also made the point that we don't know how many people are going to want to use captions there may be some people who english is a second language people who are hard of hearing, people who don't come to the box office and say, hi, I'm deaf, I need a caption phone. Like, just people will find when me and Tom go around and speak to people and then realize that they're not understanding what I'm saying or they're reading my lips or... And it was like, we need that flexibility of being able to turn the captions on and off. On all the phones. On all the phones. And Abenaf <laughs> sort of... I remember Abenaf being like... Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and then like realizing how much work it was for him. But he, I mean, they did it. They they made every phone have cap, if it be available for captions. And they gave me complete control over all of the captions. The other element of using not found we want to chat about is the sound design. So our composer and designer is the incredibly talented Jeannie Friedel. My composer name is Friedel and I work as a sound designer, but mainly as a <laughs> composer and songwriter. He's actually collaborated with us since day one. He's been on stage with me back in 2006 in Calabroy. And yeah, he's been with us throughout. We discussed with him the difference between digital sites and real sites and some of the challenges that come with our work. Both of them are uh, considered to be the same skill. You need to know how to uh, um, activate the computer and record the sound mm -hmm. and record the space and uh, then create the music and be sensitive for what the story is and which characters there and all of that but i think in practical it's a very very different uh, skill mm -hmm. because um, there is a massive difference between using these two different me mediums in film and digital mm -hmm. all the sounds you do are to make specifically i'm talking about kind of a uh, feature films or digital works that you, you see like live action you want people to believe in it and one of the reason uh, one of the ways to make people believe in what they see is to feel that everything that you see is making sense if someone closed the door you can hear it's closed the door if you close the door and noisy street there is a noise street and in, when you do it in live um, <laughs> you actually it's already real mm. And then what you need to do is to see how do I work with these real sounds that they won't interfere with the 
emotions and the kind of fiction or uh, fantasy that I'm trying to create or the story that I'm trying to tell. So in a way, it's, it's almost the opposite in terms of the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in, in, for example, User Not Found, because it was in a coffee place, um, we needed to uh, find the proper balance of the text that is coming from a live person <laughs> that is in the room, the coffee place that has its own natural sounds, uh, but we can't control them because they're coming in, in a random way, like in a coffee place. So you need to kind of consider um, this and to work with them, with the limitation. The sounds that we had on the phone themselves, which were also, again, they need to sound realistic. So when you press something, it needs to be heard. So you want to hear it, that, you know, that, and, uh, that there is no delay suddenly or something. Because anything, specifically with sound design, less with music, but with sound design, anything that uh, doesn't sound realistic, it immediately you lose uh, confidence in the piece. You lose uh, the um, authenticity. So, you know, one of the... Uh, interesting bits is to how to blend the uh, realistic bits which are need to be very accurate and emphasized and the text goes with the text sound and the uh, coffee machine works when the coffee we want the coffee machine and all of these kind of things uh, together with the unrealistic stuff with the abstract stuff when we suddenly we want to take people out of this kind of reality and give them some poetic moments always me always Nora Jones minutes I'm waiting minutes. Frankie doesn't say. Where you add to the story in a non-verbal way, in a more kind of um, uh, physical way. Uh, and my mind it wanders back through Frankie and Neelam and college and back to my first kiss and back and back to my 14th birthday and back to when I was six and went on holiday in Wales and it rained and rained. I remember looking at the distance of these little sheep, like little watercolour blocks of amnesia and I remember the pounding in my heart the first time I heard my mother say the word cloud or space uh, way but <laughs> then you do it in digital and then you don't have suddenly the physical way but you still want to create poetic moments so you need to change again the mo- medium and and mm-hmm. work more maybe with the sound suddenly and visuals mm-hmm. uh, that are coming from the phone or things like that so during the pandemic we adapted user not found into a video podcast we wanted to see if we could bring the show to people's own phones at home so we asked Yaniv about his experience with that transition. When we adapted it to a podcast, I felt that we need to be more accurate in terms of the sounds because because you lose like... Uh, the sight. The sight, which is... Uh, I don't know what percentage it is in the piece, but it's uh, quite a big one, I would mm. say. We couldn't actually get into people's phones and get them to vibrate. Do you remember what solutions we found for that? For the vibration? Yeah. We, we, we couldn't physically vibrate, for example. I think we used the sound. For we used the sound, we, yeah. Yeah, it's, again, it's like lips, uh, uh, you know, it's, um, it's amazing how when you hear this sound, you almost feel the movement of the phone mm. nowadays, you know, and the opposite. You know, many times I put my phone in my pocket 
and something vibrates and I think it's my phone and <laughs> then I realize that I just imagined it. <laughs> so it, bo- it works vice versa, I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and specifically the vibration, because it's such a unique um, sound in a way, I think part of it is specifically when you record vibration of the phone, if you record it on a table, for example, it even becomes more realistic. Mm. I think what we used it was something is a vibration of a phone on a table or something like that. So you hear like the zzz, you you hear almost the material that it was on, mm. and then you really <laughs> feel the movement of it. Mm. So, uh, mm. uh, but I think it's the same with the bottom uh, button of um, the iPhone. You know, they removed the button, but they kept the the vibration feeling. Yeah. So you almost feel that there is a button there, but there is no. Mm. It's, it's flat. It's also a psycholo- it's a psychological difference. People were not sitting in a cafe. They mm-hmm. didn't see the cafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't create that world. Drink a cup of coffee when they Yeah, and still they had uh background noises. Yeah. But uh, now it's even less in control because it's not coffee place background noises. It can be a garbage truck outside. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> so you So again, you come back to the television world or to the c- cinema world where you don't consider these other outside sounds. Um, but I think we needed to, first of all, all the movement areas where we had the movement in the show, which adds a massive uh, element in the hyper-realistic uh, and the feeling. Suddenly we needed to create them, them only with visuals and sound. Um, so I think we, we, we had to, if I remember, we had to enhance these kind of parts and edit them more correctly and control them and maybe edit it shortly even, shorter, mm-hmm. if I'm not wrong. And that was one thing. And really work on the transitions from the voice. Suddenly, it makes more sense when the voice becomes affected mm. because you're used to hear like uh, that. So, so we didn't want to... I remember that. Then the effects can suddenly become ridiculous if you don't do them more gently. It's like someone uh, finding Photoshop and start to put everything in bold and glitzy uh, <laughs> lights because it's co- it can. Um, so you need to be more gentle in order to do the transition smooth, smoothly. Um, so yeah, I think it was a very interesting um, uh, process. I think in this specific show, because it was anyhow on headphones, it was interesting... <laughs> How two different uh, mediums, both you hear in the same way, can be so, in a way, have different challenges. One of our digital projects is an interactive, animated short film called Odds On. And we worked with an animator for the very first time, John Branagh. Hi, my name is John Walsh Branagh. And uh, I was the animation director and editor of Odds On. We got John to tell us about Odds On in his own words. I would describe it as an interactive film experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that was what we actually came up with in the end, but um, for the title. But I feel like it's, it's kind of, and it's also kind of un, indefinable, if that's the word, because I've, I've never seen anything like this done before where it's a combination of lots of different disciplines and media. So an audience member would log into the um, Odds On website and create their username and profile. You're the best. Sure am. 
and choose their avatar. So our theme was an underwater theme, so they would choose their fish. Shall I put you back in the water? Yes, please, Plutus 57. Thank you, Plutus. Um, and then they would be invited to play a game. Well, are you coming then? So it was a, a slot machine. A slot machine, right? Yeah. So um, they would they would play the slot machine as if they were playing an online gambling game, and then when they won a prize, when they won the jackpot, we would we would there would literally be the camera that would dive into the game, flip around, and then we're now observing from inside the device a woman playing the game, mm. and then we're experiencing her story from the perspective of the game. So this is a really new project for us and we pitched it to John and we wanted to ask him what he thought he was getting himself involved in when he said yes. I had no idea. <laughs> I don't think any of us really knew the extent of, of, of what it was involved because it was brand new territory for all of us. I'd say it would have been brand new territory for anyone mm. to have a combination of live action, animation and interactivity at the same time. So it, it was uncharted waters, pardon the pun, <laughs> for all of us. We had to build the world of an online slot machine game. It had to be really, really detailed. And actually, in order to do that, we had to get a bit DIY. Yes, so um, there was a few moments in the piece where Felicity interacts with fish. Um, there, was, there was that scene where a fish jumps out of the game and lands on her shoulder. There was a scene where she had to lie in bed with her husband who turned into a whale. There was a scene where she was in a bath with her grandchild and the, the fish were jumping in and out of the water. And a lot of that was achieved with tracking, so digital tracking. So we would place um, something on her shoulder to match for the computer to track. So we used a little black cross. Mm -hmm. And um, the computer would then track that, that object um, frame by frame. And then you literally just attach something to that path. So that's all. It, it was. It's really clever software, but um, then you have to match it. You have to match the lighting, and then there's obviously little things that need to be changed. When her finger goes in front of the the fish, it had to go frame by frame to make sure her finger wasn't hidden behind the fish. So it was. It was quite intricate, but mm. I think we. I think we did a good job. What I love about that is that the the technology you're using, the software you're using, is really kind of quite complex and allows you to do these things. But the actual physical way that we did it in the room was quite DIY, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, literally a cardboard square on the or a cross on the. And shoulder. when we did the R and D, we had um, Philippa, the stage manager, underneath the table, like tapping Fiona's because it was yes. like a way for her to know what spin she was on. Yes, yeah, to know when the sound effect would finish. Yeah, mm -hmm. there was, but I, I loved that. Yeah, in in how we did it, there was no, there was no sense of whether we were doing it right or wrong. We just figured it out as we went. And that, mm. there was a joy in that because we were all on the same page, you know. And that's like such one. the heart of like <laughs> theatre making, isn't it? You're kind of in a room together going, well, we want to achieve this thing. How do we do it? And everyone kind of, yeah. Yeah. The other um, issue that we tried to solve for a while was how to make it feel like we are on the other side of Fiona's screen mm. so she would touch the screen in the right place and we we had a big construction with a perspex attached to a like a tripod do you remember some of those experiments and what what solutions we tried to find with it yeah so yeah you're right because there was the um 
we have to have the sense of that you're inside a device looking out. So there has to be a, a surface that she can tap and she will tap the same point every time. But that's really difficult to achieve for, for, for Fiona or for any actress or any performer who is both, they're both the talent and the camera person at the same time <laughs> mm -hmm. and having to negotiate that. So we used, we used little markers outside the perspective and we like little, little things on, on that device that she held. We had um, a little marker that would say spin button or mute button on, on the side. And she did really, really well. And she had to like learn it. It was like choreography in a way. 100%. She just had yeah. to learn which bits, which button to press at each time and remember like with her lines yes. what she was doing. And um, follow her eye line of, or, or yeah. know where, where the creatures were in the scene that she had to be looking at. And, you know, she did, she did a fantastic job. So working with John was really interesting because he's not just an animator. No, he is an amazing West End musical theatre performer. Like he's been in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Matilda. He played the Rum Tum Tugger and toured internationally. And, and to me, it felt like working with him was almost like working with a choreographer. He mm. understood the space and he understood the rhythms and he understood the choreography of the animation. And creating a narrative and, and a drive. And yeah, it was great. I know this sounds strange to someone looking at from the outside, but it felt the same So as, as putting something on stage. So if you, let's say there's a scene where, you know, we, let's say the underwater dance party that's a, a section in, in one of the scenes. It happens in a kind of a, a 3D environment with lots of rocks and underwater plants and there's a ship in the background and mountains and bubbles and all the rest. So you form this 3D set, which essentially, it's probably subconscious, but ends up being kind of a, a pros arch sort of a setup for mm. for me. And if you move the camera away, it literally looks like a stage floor with lots of flat flats and then just layers going off into the distance. And then you record each individual character's performance one at a time. So <laughs> you go body part by body part, but then eventually it's character by character. And you place them on the stage and then light it, like literally light it. So like the, the software goes, place spotlight here angle it there, whether you want the spotlight to move, whether you want the angle, the cone to go wider or narrower, and when you want them to fade up or change color. So it felt like putting together a digital show. <laughs> so it, it felt really transferable. And when people were um, ent entering or the characters were entering or exiting and what their staging was. So it felt like the same, just using different tools. So that's a little glimpse of how we've been making digital worlds our sites. And actually, if you want to watch Odds On, it is available right now for free on our website. It's danteodai.com. We'd love to know what you think. Thank you to Luke and Abhinav. And even John. And Philippa. And if you have any thoughts or questions about what we've been chatting about, please get in touch on our socials at danteodai. Hashtag DOD podcast. This has been a Dante or Die podcast. Thank you to our producers, Marie Horner and Erica McCoy. And for the music by Yaniv Friedel and our brilliant Dante team, Caitlin, Lucy, Sophie and Catherine. The podcast was recorded at Phoenix Court and Soho Sonic Studios. And it's been funded by Arts Council England. <laughs>